All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. This week, I am joined by John Halloran of also the Equalizer. And we have about the biggest episode we've had to do in a while. We have (laughs) Olympic action to talk about. We have NWSL action to talk about. I'll just let you guys know now. We're going to spend the A block talking about the Olympics. We're going to spend the B block talking about the NWSL. So if you have an interest there, want to hear about international stuff, want to hear about the league, you can skip through. So as of right now, we are, well, I should ask, how are you doing, John? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. It's been a long weekend of soccer, it but yeah. certainly has. Yeah. It's been a long week of soccer. Um, yeah. We are two games in to the group stage of the Olympic tournament. There are three groups and real quick, I'm just going to give a rundown of where everything sits right now. Two games in, in group E, we have uh, great Britain at the top of their group with six points. Canada is in second with four. Japan is in third with one. Chile is with uh, in fourth with none, no points. Group F, we have the Netherlands in first, but that is purely on goal differential. They are tied in points with Brazil, who is in second. China is in third. Zambia is in fourth. And then we have group G, which is where we're going to be spending most of our time. Sweden is in first with six points. The U S women's national team is in second with three. Australia is in third also with three. New Zealand is in fourth with no points. So we're starting to see things shake out. We are releasing this the day before the final group stage games. We will find out exactly what happens next then, but I actually will say we're not seeing a ton of shockers here. This group E with Great Britain, Canada, Japan, and Chile has been very methodical. There's been a lot of cohesive play, not a ton of goals. We're seeing the teams that we expected to be at the top kind of be at the top, but also, again, methodical kind of to a fault. Japan is struggling a little bit to find some cohesion and to find the ability to turn what they're able to do on the ball into goals. In group F, a little bit of chaos. Uh, the Netherlands and Brazil have been very neck and neck. They tied each other in a 3-3 draw. No defense, no defense at all, um, but a lot of offense. And actually the reason the Netherlands are in first is because they actually beat Zambia 10-3, to which was the highest scoring Olympic match in history. But talking about Group G, and we are going to talk about Group G. This is going to be U.S. Women's National Team centric, just because that is the thing that we have focused the most on. And maybe this will help us give a perspective on what we see in its entirety for the knockout stage. Group G, maybe surprising, maybe not. John, first question for you, and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions in this episode. Are you shocked? that this has gone the way that it has, or did you think maybe this would happen? I don't think I'm shocked that the results have gone the way that they have, but I think everybody was shocked at the scoreline of the first game and the way that Sweden just seemed to dismantle the U S it really, again, you know, if they, if they lose a game, so what, you know, if you lose one, nothing, so what, if you look at the 2016 game, the U S actually outplayed Sweden and lost, you know, ends up losing that game and, in penalties. That's not what this was. This was another team taking the U S apart in a way that 
I can't, I think the only time I can remember, or at least the most recent time I can remember this happening was that she believes cup when they played France and got, and got really beaten up. But that's the last time I remember this happening. Right. It's, it's interesting contextually because we know the stat, which is that um, in 2015 and in 2019, uh, the U S women's national team began both of those years with a big high profile loss. Mm-hmm. So that is kind of part of their process in a way in a weird way that they do get exposed and then maybe learn some things from that we saw them get very exposed maybe in 2017 right and then kind of move on from there this is the first time we've seen it in the tournament itself right and maybe you know long overdue honestly right they had some very close calls in the she believes cup you look at their um their match against canada where it was very close and then they had you know Canada maybe had an argument for a penalty they didn't get that penalty and then the U.S. actually pulls that result out um I think we have an opportunity here and and I actually want to shout out real quick I want to shout out the kick and back podcast the equalizer kick and back podcast uh hosted by Jeff Kasuf because he has been doing actual game day reactions he has a game day reaction of the Sweden game he has a game day reaction of the New Zealand game we have an opportunity to look at this both from game to game and holistically. And it's really kind of interesting because you have this three, nothing loss to Sweden at the beginning of the games, which is quite alarming, not only the result, but sort of the way it was played. The U S got overrun. They were overwhelmed by a very basic tactical plan. Sweden didn't do anything miraculous. They just executed a very sound basic game plan and they outplayed the U S both individually and as a team. But then you have the U.S.'s six to one victory over New Zealand, which I wonder. All right, I'm going to ask you another question. If these results had been flipped, if the U.S. starts the tournament six to one against New Zealand and then has a rough game against Sweden, maybe with the understanding that if this had not been the first game, maybe it's a two to nothing victory for Sweden, a two one victory for Sweden. Would we be as concerned? Is some of this tournament state, do you think? I don't know. I think that's an interesting question, but I'm not sure it, it would matter just because of, as we've said, how thoroughly the U.S. was dismantled in that game. I think that's what shakes your confidence. If you go in and, and, and you play somebody straight up or, or even dominate them and lose, that listen, that's soccer. That happens. But they weren't really in that Sweden game at all. Now, maybe there could have been a, a scenario. I think it was Press who hit the post at one point, and maybe Sweden misses a couple more of their chances. But that scoreline probably was generous towards the United States because Sweden didn't really score on their good chances in that game. Their goals that they scored were more kind of their, their freak chances. Uh, they broke the U.S. down, I think, four or five times in the first half alone when you thought that they would have been able to convert those. And they, uh, Nayer made two excellent saves. Um, they, they shot one or two over the bar. They fired one right at Nayer. I think that that game really could have been four, five, six, nothing. Um, I think the play the, and the poor uh, nature of that play is really what kind of unsettles uh, you, whether that's, you know, as a fan, uh, an observer, or uh, perhaps even even some of the players on the team. Yes, and I think this is a good segue to start talking about that because when I was compiling my notes for this, 
I found myself just writing names down on the defense, on the midfield, on the front line. And it was interesting because I found myself simply writing names as a question. So they're like writing the names on the defense with a question mark, writing the names in the midfield with a question mark, forwards with a question mark, writing Vladko and Anofsky's name with a question mark. And I think that maybe that is where some of the unsettling feeling comes from, which is that I think we felt like things were more settled maybe yeah. going into this, or we trusted that they were more settled. And what we've actually seen is a coach in his first major tournament who was learning on site and some players who are either in form or not in form or for whatever reason, mentally or physically don't feel as secure as they have in the past. And we're seeing that. So I think we should go through these lines. Um, maybe the first place to start is with Vladko Andonovsky. Did you think, so uh, there's a lot of different ways you can look at this, but it looked like the U S was not expecting to have to defend a full team press in this first match against Sweden, which I know a lot of us who watched that friendly against Sweden in April were very surprised by because I mean, I, we've talked about this. We talked about how physical Sweden got in the midfield. We talked about how they brought the game to the U.S. Why did they show up not ready for a very basic attacking game plan? And is that on Vladko Andonovsky? Well, this is where it goes back to what we were talking about to open things up, where I, that was the game that I really kind of thought that if you're Vladko, you almost are okay losing it. Or maybe you you coach in a way that doesn't have enough urgency so that your team does drop that result at the end or you or do maybe what Ellis- you think, or maybe you think Sweden doesn't come out quite so hard because what I anticipated was that this would be two teams with the understanding that they might see each other again. Yeah, maybe, but Sweden wanted to win this game. Well, and it's, it's important mentally. I think that yeah. the fact that they were able to do that and give themselves that confidence because in the final game of the group stage of the 2019 world cup, I think everybody thought that Sweden was going to put up more of a fight. Right. Um, but what I was, what I was saying is like, I think when, especially in 2019, I think in 2019, when Ellis lost that game to France, she kind of did it on purpose. I think she's thought we're six months away from the tournament. I need to get something to get everybody focused, something that I can yell at them when trainings drop off a little bit, something to remind them. And under Andonovsky, they haven't had that moment. And so, you know, I, it was so interesting when they came out. I don't know if you saw this, but when they, you know, they come out for the, the beginning of the game and there's no, there's no fans in the stands and I'm watching the U S come out of the tunnel and they're laughing and they're smiling. And I thought this is a team that's either incredibly loose and ready to go, or this is a team that is not mentally prepared uh, to play this match. And it seemed like it was the former based on what happened inside of those 90 minutes. I remember Tobin Heath looked very serious. And everybody else was kind of laughing and joking around. Um, and I didn't know if that was because there weren't fans there or, like I said, maybe they just felt super prepared. Uh, but, but in the end, it seemed like they just weren't prepared at all and weren't ready, at least mentally, um, to, to do what they were going to have to do in that match. Yeah, no, I think that that's fair. And I think we've seen this is something that we've seen time and time again in the men's game. We've seen in the women's clubs game you go into a final, which I think, you know, I've seen, it was said to me that it seemed like the U S were playing a friendly and the Sweden and Sweden was playing Mm -hmm. in the Olympics. And that is a different, that's a different situation. And 
I don't know if that's on the leadership of the team, uh, the older players. Um, I don't know if it's an indictment. And I actually, maybe this is a good way to segue then into this, which is um, the adjustments that were, were not made in that game. Uh, it was, it was spoken about, I think it was total soccer show that, that talked about how Vladko Andonovsky was talking to Becky Sauerbrunn in the first hydration break, which was about the 33rd minute of the first half. And they were talking about bypassing the midfield entirely, mm-hmm. which is a wild thing to do considering the U S's makeup. Their midfield is one of their greatest strengths. They were stretched by the fact that they had Lindsay Horan playing in the six, but Again, like you said, it came back to this idea that both coaching staff and players, none of them even imagined that this game was possible and therefore yeah. didn't actually even really have an answer for it. Um, is this on Andonovsky or is this on the roster? I think some of it is. I mean, if you looked at, at Lavelle and Mewis, how high they were playing up the field, now maybe they were just ignoring the game plan, but the, the number of times where they would just wait for Sauerbrunn or Dunn to get the ball and then stick them in a 4v2 situation and just pin them in. Um, You just saw that over and over and over again. And the U.S. wasn't able to pass out of that. And the wings weren't coming back to help enough. And the midfielders, absent Haran, were not coming back to to win the ball. And so the U.S. kept getting outnumbered. So it doesn't, it it makes sense that they were, you know, that they eventually got to that point where they were going to bypass the midfield. But I'm not sure it ever really should have come to that. Agreed. Yeah. Now watching that game and I did watch it live. I woke up in the middle of the night. You woke you wake up in the middle of the night, John? Yeah, no, we, I, we I sure did. did. Like, <laughs> this this whole week I've been taking like three and four hour naps and I yeah. can't get my sleep cycle straight. Oh, so. Same. Um but my thought at the time, and I have to admit that I don't know if my thoughts at the time were that great, but was that people were calling for Julie Ertz in that Mm -hmm. moment they said we need julie ertz and i know that the thought that i had was yes of course julie ertz would help but she can't make the people in front of her start making creative runs or start pulling defenders and the thing that was not happening was actually more of a concern than slotting a defensive midfielder in it was everything else it's like you said they didn't seem like they were ready to play okay and and haran's possession should have been an added value for right. over Earths in, in that situation to possess out of those, those tighter spaces. Right. Um, this will tie into what I want to say about the, the following game, but let's, let's stay on Sweden for a while because it deserves it. So um, they get into the half of this game only down by one goal, mm-hmm. which honestly is impressive. And I think that I do think that the U S especially when you're playing someone like crystal Dunn at outside back, which and I don't actually say this as a, a, anything against Crystal Dunn. I just think that she is not a natural defender and therefore much of her defensive work is recovery and last ditch and, and, and effort based. And so I, I understand the argument of the quote unquote, it could have been worse. I also think part of the U.S.'s quality is that they were able to stop it from being worse. I think that, you know, like you said, Nair had a pretty good game. Dunn had a lot of last ditch defending that she was doing. Um, And there were moments in the first part of the second half when Ertz did come in and maybe a little bit of a different tone was set where you think, oh, maybe, maybe the U S actually kind of sneaks a draw out of this one somehow. Mm -hmm. But what happened and and the reason this became a three, nothing draw. And I think you all of the larger things about mentality, preparation, uh, 11 construction are valid. 
But the reason this became three to nothing after, like you said, I think there was a, a mischance by Kristen Press early in the second half, and then it started going in the other way, um, also had to do with defensive breakdowns in a way that especially centrally we're not used to seeing from the United States. And I know that that energy, that, that concern carried into the second game. Yeah, it did. And so I, I, I want to start, let's start talking about the lines. Let's start talking about what's going on. Um, we had Becky Sauerbrunn and Abby Dahlkemper in game one. We had Abby Dahlkemper and Tierna Davidson in game two. Abby Dahlkemper, man, yeah, what's she's happening? Yeah. So, so let's talk about a couple of things. Let's, let's in fact throw out the misclear that leads to the goal, because I think that shades everybody saying, see, look, she's having a bad tournament. Right. Um, because I think she was having a bad tournament before that even happened. Um, if you go and you look at the third goal that Sweden scored, um, Sweden came down the right side and uh, Sauerbrunn ended up sliding out wider which in a purely theoretical exercise of defensive shape would then lead Dahl Kemper to also shift to the left. But what we saw in, in this particular situation was that she was literally tracking a runner six yards from goal and then decided to leave the runner to mark an empty patch of grass. And then the ball gets put in. Um, and I, I can't remember if that was um, Black, Black and Stinius on that one or not. Um, but but the, obviously they had an easy put away for that for that third goal. And then what we saw uh, in the New Zealand game was a very similar situation where runners were sneaking in, in this case, between Sonnet and Dahl Kemper on that back post. And she's just really having a difficult time tracking runners in behind her. And look, there are numerous reasons that this could be happening. Um, this could be a situation, you know, without us being field level of the right back, not communicating of her, not hearing it, uh, or of her not adjusting, but there have been runners off her back shoulder on at least three separate occasions who have been able to receive the ball in dangerous positions. Um, and obviously on a couple of occasions score. Not to... Talk, I mean, we don't actually know the answer for why this might be happening, but is there a possibility that this is um, influenced by the fact that she's out of season right now or that that's an interesting, that's an interesting know. thought. I hadn't, yeah. I hadn't personally thought that, but uh, you know, sure. You don't, you don't play a lot of games, you know, you're going to be a little bit out of form. I, I will say in her defense that, you know, marking off your back shoulder is about the most difficult thing you can do as a defender. Um, because you can't see it. And so you're relying on that communication. It does seem like there's a fair amount of disorganization. There was one um, situation where Ertz had even fallen into the back line, trying to track an extra runner in the New Zealand game, because it was clear that, uh, that they were just going to have somebody open on that back stick. Yeah. Um, So talking about some other parts of, of the defense. So, Sweden got a lot of action against the the right-hand side or their right-hand side, but the U.S.'s left side. Um, And some of that, I think it's hard to determine intent, whether Sweden was intentionally Mm -hmm. attacking that side or just that they have some of their better players over there. Um, And so we saw that a little bit exposed. And then, like you said, on the other side, 
against New Zealand. We saw some issues with, with the communication between Abby Dahl Kemper and Emily Sonnet. Now, I am about to be very rude, actually, because I'm about to talk about a player that didn't actually play in the Sweden game and was a part of that New Zealand very high-scoring win. But I will say this. When I was watching that Sweden game, and you think about who can come off the bench and help, and who is someone who is maybe a part of a team that didn't anticipate themselves being in that position, I think you have to look at Emily Sonnet. Because that is a player that has not been brought in to play center back. I do not think she's a center back option. I think it's clear at this point that she's also not really a number six option. Their number six option very clearly is Julie Ertz. Mm -hmm. Julie Ertz, or you're going home. And she can't come into a game that is actually competitive and influence it in any positive way based on what she's being asked to do. Now she can come in and start against New Zealand, which to be frank was a game that they would have won probably even with the performance that they gave against Sweden. But you look at the alternates and you look at someone like Casey Kruger or Katarina Macario or Lynn Williams, there are arguments for like why all of those players might actually be useful in a game like the game against Sweden. So I want to talk about this a little bit with the caveat that I don't actually think that there is a single player that has been left home that would have fixed what happened against Sweden. I don't actually think that. But you look at a player like Emily Sonnet and you think the U.S. maybe thought this was going to be easier than it ended up being. It's funny because I had sent out a tweet uh, during the New Zealand game before Dahl Kemper's big mistake, just saying that the U.S. is having problems between Dahl Kemper and the right back. And I was very clear to point out that that was two different players based on the two different games. And it turned into like one of those uh, uh, Rorschach tests, like, you know, the inkblot test, because in my mentions because you know there was about a third of the people there saying see this is what happens when you don't bring Mitch first and a third of the people were saying why isn't Casey Kruger playing and a third of them were saying why didn't you bring Allie Krieger and so you know kind of what you're saying is like could anybody really fix that um I think part of it is tactical I think part of it is and we see this on the left side as well that clearly Andonovsky's setup is asking the outside backs to go forward very aggressively. And the problem with sending both outside backs forward is that now you're leaving two players back and you're leaving these gigantic gaps between the outside backs and the center backs on a counter. And when the U S is losing possession, the way that they did in the Sweden game, and you're having those massive gaps, a good team is going to get their forwards into those channels and be able to feed them the ball and you're not going to be able to recover. And that's what was happening. And so that was happening with O'Hara. Um, it was happening with Sonnet. It was happening with Dunn. Um, I do think that uh, O'Hara and Dunn are the two best. I don't, I, in my opinion, there's not really any question. I don't think it's very close. When we, when we're talking about Emily Sonnet, I haven't understood that one for a long, long time. I don't think she's an outside back. I don't think she senses the angles the way that a, a traditional or natural outside back would. 
I think she's hyper aggressive, which leads her to make big mistakes when she makes them. I would personally feel more comfortable if you played somebody who was a natural outside back like Casey Kruger. And to be honest with you, and I know there's, there's a certain sect of the fan base, um, you know, who, who's always saying this, but I think there's a reason that Jill Ellis brought Ellie Krieger in 2019. And I think it was the right reason. It was like, I've got this player who's got a ton of experience. She's probably not going to make any big mistakes. Um, I'm going to throw her there if I get stuck. And you saw that in the final when O'Hara went down with that head injury, Krieger's the one who went in for the second half of the world cup final. And there's, there's a reason for that. I don't think Emily Sonnet um, can play right back at this level against the best teams. And so I think you'd be better off. Uh, and now if you're looking at what, what you have, then Casey Kruger's what you got, because that's what you brought. Yeah. I think my litmus test is, would you start her against Australia? And for Emily Sonnet, my answer is no. Yeah. And that's, you know, to t- that's a good way to tie all of this together. Because if you're talking about gaps in between your center back and your right back, and if you're talking about a weak side center back who's not tracking markers when service is coming in to the air, you're about to play Australia. You're about to play against Sam Kerr, who is one of the best in the world at running in, in between defenders and getting headers on goal. Sam Kerr has literally ruined Emily Sonnet's life before. <laughs> like they have experience. Um, yes. Okay, so the back line, well, maybe maybe the final thing about the back line here. Final question for you, John. Against Australia, going forward, do you say, I need Tierna Davidson back there? I wouldn't just because, one, you know, you got to figure Dahl Kemper is eager to, to well, step shake it yourself up. out of it. Yeah. Right, yeah. And, and I think she's obviously has the big game experience, the 2019 World Cup. You know, she was, she was there the entire tournament through all the big games. Um, you know, everybody has bad games. I, I think that, that she'll, she'll get there. And I think that this is this, this Australia game coming up is a good opportunity to help her build her confidence back up before you get to the knockout rounds. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, the way I've kind of described it is that it feels like the U S right now is kind of in like a club season in a really aggressive fast forward where in a way they kind of actually are still in roster evaluation, whether people like it or not. And they're finding out who can do it in the moment. And so they have to make some decisions on who they want to stick with and who they want to rotate. Okay. Let's talk about the midfield. Um, The issues with the number six, I'm going to be a bit of a contrarian here. I don't think it's the biggest issue to be completely honest. Yeah, I Um, I just really don't. I think that, Lindsay Horan and Julie Ertz both are able to be a physical presence in the defensive midfield. The difference between Ertz and Horan is this, and this is actually a good tie-in to what we've seen from Sam Mewis. And then I think Rose Lavelle really turned this around in the second match, but Julie Ertz, if you watch her in that New Zealand game, she, she I don't want to even talk about Sweden, the New Zealand game that she started and she played for the whole game. Yes. Big physical presence winning balls, all of that. She was telling people where to pass. Yeah, She was telling Abby Dahlkemper what to do. She was telling Emily Sonnet what to do. She was telling Tierna Davidson what to do. She was directing traffic in a way that did not feel like a suggestion. <laughs> she was <laughs> telling them what to do. And I don't know if that was a response to the Sweden game or not, but that is what she brings that is different from someone like Lindsay Horan. 
Lindsay Horan is not going to tell her center backs where to pass the ball. She's just not. Um, and I don't know if that's a mentality thing, confidence level, whatever. It's an intangible, maybe. Um, it was maybe concerning that sometimes Julie Ertz did not get the pass that she wanted. <laughs> we saw a couple of times her having to react to a, a center back or an outside back ignoring her. Um, and so that is, that's what she brings. That's why things look different is because she makes other people, other players feel more comfortable because she is telling them what to do. I'm going to be completely honest here and go a little bit off script and say that the player to me that has been the most disappointing in the midfield in two games is Sam Mewis. And that's interesting to me because she has been in such good form recently. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had this thought and I, I don't think I even believe myself until you just said this, but I almost feel like this is the exact opposite of what happened in 2019 where Lindsay Horan was the starter going into the tournament and Sam Mewis was the starter coming out of the tournament where you might almost have the opposite where, you know, Mewis got subbed out of the first game. And, uh, and maybe, maybe you end up in a situation where it's Ertz, Ertz, Lavelle and Haran, uh, in the starting lineup by the end, by the end of the tournament. I will say though, too, as we kind of move further up the midfield, that I thought Lavelle was pretty poor against Sweden. And I thought in the second half against New Zealand is where you started to see the Rose Lavelle that we're used to. I thought in the Sweden game, when they were able to get the ball to the midfield, that she was responsible for a number of the giveaways that resulted in the counters. And when she's given the ball away on a counter, you're going to be exposed. And I, I don't think that she probably played that first game, even to her own expectations. Yeah. Agreed. Which I actually think is good news for the United States. Yeah. I do think that all of these conversations about individual lack of whatever, whatever thing that people bring is actually good because it means that they can get better, which is what they want. Um, yes. So, so the midfield I think is interesting. And like I said, I don't think Lavelle, I don't think Lavelle gets dropped. I think what she brought to that New Zealand game was a desire to do much better in a very obvious way. And I think that that will be something that the team will respond to. Um, but yeah, I think that like I, so like we were talking about the big concern was the lack of movement in the attacking midfield more than anything. Um, so we'll figure this out again. Julie Ertz went 90 against New Zealand. We'll see what happens against Australia, but if they're banking on that, seems like it's going okay for her physically. So um, we'll just have to see what happens. So let's talk about the, the attack. I don't even think against the Sweden game, you can really blame the attack much. The game was so lost in the middle of the pitch and in the defense that I don't think you can point to the, the, the offense there and say, you didn't do enough. Maybe there should have, maybe they should have reacted to, maybe they should have gotten deeper for service. There are, there are some things you can do, but with probably the coaching that they were given, they kind of stuck with what they were doing. Um, I am interested by what seems to be a true rotation between Alex Morgan and Carly Lloyd. Not even that Vladko is really giving them a game. It's more that he's giving them like a half or 60 minutes per game, mm -hmm. which that is different. That is a different mental approach to those two players that we've seen in the past. In the past, we've seen Jill Ellis say, this is your game and I want you to 
influence this particular game as much as you possibly can. And then I just think we're seeing very natural rotation in, in yep. the other parts. It just, that is just the nature of the tournament. We're seeing Megan Rapino start a game, play 60, play 30 the next game. We're seeing Tobin Heath do the same thing. That doesn't stress me out quite so much because that is just how you manage a tournament. What do you think of that number nine role? Because I think that a lot of people felt going into this that Alex Morgan was the starter and Carly Lloyd was the backup, but even in a more intentional way, they are equal right now, right? I still think Morgan's the starter. I think you're going to see her start the final game against Australia. I think you'll see her start, you know, depending on how far they go. Um, I think you'll see her start more of the knockout games. It doesn't mean that Lloyd might not still get another start in there. Um, and I do think that, that when they're both at their best, I do think Morgan has an edge because Morgan's still got that ability, maybe not as strong as it was, um, you know, I guess now 10 years ago, (laughs) nine years ago, uh, to get in behind the way she used to, but she's still got a great left foot. Um, but I do think that one thing that a lot of people probably don't put a lot of thought into is how similar they are in the holdup role that they're both physical. They're both good in the air. Um, Carly's probably a little bit better with her back to pressure just from all those years playing as a midfielder, a little bit better building up play. And then, like I said, Morgan is probably a little bit better in terms of uh, being a threat to stretch the back line. Um, but, but they're very, very similar players. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. When, when Ellis started transitioning um, Lloyd into that nine role, as much as Lloyd felt that Ellis treated her unfairly, I think Ellis was kind of doing Lloyd a favor in terms of the longevity of her career. Because if Lloyd was still a center midfielder, her career was probably over three years ago. Um, that move to, to her playing that hold up nine has really extended uh, her ability to, to play with this group still at a high level. Okay, so a couple closing questions here. Now, we are recording this on Sunday night. We'll find out what happens against Australia. To me, like I said, the litmus test is this Australia game, I think. We saw a game go very poorly. We saw a game against an overmatched opponent. And I want to be clear, the U.S. made New Zealand's life hell in that game. They came out with a very aggressive approach. They were, they were on their heels at all times probably even to their detriment, they didn't have to do that, but they wanted to do that in the face of the Sweden game. Um, John, at this moment, and, and we'll have more information next week, but do you think that that Sweden game, is the U.S. having a Sweden problem or the U.S. having a U.S. problem? I think it's probably a Sweden problem, to be honest with you. Sweden... Sweden gave them, you know, as you mentioned, problems in the spring. Um, And I think this, and they mentioned this on the broadcast too, but this Sweden team isn't the Pia Sundhaga Sweden. This isn't the, we're going to sit back and see what happens. They're ready to ram it down the throat of the U.S. Um, And if I'm Sweden, that's such a a liberating feeling to, hey, we're not going to sit back and just take punches and see if we can stay in it. Um, we're going to go after them. And the thing for them is they don't really have anything to lose. They could beat. Everybody expected them to get beat. Um, so they get to play with a lot more freedom uh, in that regard. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And I think that that is why I say that I'm not sure that this actually affects the U.S. 
in their ability to make the later rounds. But with the understanding that they might have Sweden at the end of that journey, I don't know. We'll see. All right. Final question from this segment. This is going to become obsolete very quickly, but I'm still going to ask you anyway. Uh, Does the U.S. beat Australia? I think so. Yes. I think Australia for, I don't know. I feel like Americans kind of have this, uh, it's like they're, it's like they're, they're sibling Australia. We're very you know, fond of them. Right. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, <laughs> I know. Yeah. We, we got to watch so many of these players uh, literally grow up in the U S because so many of them came over, you know, to the American leagues when they were teenagers, really. And, um, and they were always kind of the fun team even in the international tournaments all those years, the up-and-comers. And then obviously a lot of Americans have gone over to the W League in, in the winners. So we've gotten to see those players um, throughout much of their career. But I just don't think – I think they probably missed their window to be as good as they as they can be. If the U.S. comes to play, it's the U.S.'s game. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, the good news for Australia and also the good news going back to for Japan is that when China and Zambia played each other in Group F, they did tie, which means that probably the third place team from Group E and Group G are going to make it to the next round, which means that it is likely that Japan and Australia have a really decent shot at, at making that happen. Um, John, actually, I, I lied. My real, my real last question is... Um, do you think what you've seen over two games radically alters your opinion of how the U S might medal? No, I mean, I still think they're the favorites. I think if they play Sweden again, again, it's going to be an absolute knockdown drag. I think the U S is going to, you know, play almost play Sweden the way that Spain played the U S in 2019. I think the U S is just going to say, if this is what you want, let's go. And I think it'll be a brawl. I agree. I'm excited. I'm honestly in many ways kind of happy that that first game went the way Mm -hmm. that it did because it added so much to what we're about to see. Um, So that's our, that's the Olympic coverage for this week. We will be back with the end of the group stage. And I think probably the first game of the knockouts. I'm not entirely sure this schedule is very fast and furious, Um, but thanks so much for listening. We'll be back with NWSL action in a minute. All right. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Equalizer podcast. I am your host, Claire Watkins. This week I am joined by John Halloran, and we are going to get into NWSL action in just one minute. But first of all, I do have to ask you to rate and review this podcast. Rate us at your favorite streaming service. Give us five stars. Say nice things. We're doing our very best to cover all of the women's soccer that's going on this summer, and it helps people find us. But I also actually want to do a quick ad read here. Um, a new one. So I just wanted to let you guys know, if you love listening to us here on the Equalizer podcast, I want to recommend just let you know what's stopping you from grabbing a mic and starting your own show and let you know that there's no better place to host that show than Blue Wire Hustle. Now, Blue Wire helps us. um, uh, What's the word? Uh, Blue Wire helps us uh, disseminate this show they are, uh, they are our network. We like Blue Wire a lot. And Hustle was created to give everyone the opportunity to take your podcast to the next level. If you want to host a podcast and don't know where to start, it's the perfect place for you. As part of the program, you'll receive personal cover art, Q&As with Blue Wire's top podcasters, access to our community discord, and an e-learning course full of tips and tricks. And on top of that, We'll let you get your show pushed out to Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and all other listening platforms. And the best part is you can get all of this for only $15 a month, the same rate as any other hosting site 
would charge you just for the initial setup. So if you're ready to do more than just listening and talk and to listening to us talk about soccer, then make your voice heard in Hustle. Acceptance into the program is limited, so get your application in today. To apply, go to bwhustle.com slash join. That is bwhustle.com slash join. And you can find that in our description of this week's episode. Okay, it is time to talk about the league. John, how does it make you feel watching NWSL games at the same time as the Olympics? Tired? Does that count? Yes, it does. <laughs> They're not on at the same time. They're on at very different times. Um, I, I'm. I, it's hard, I think, to to stretch to stretch that attention out. But I appreciate everyone who does, because we had another really kind of active week. Not even really just in results, but just in shakeup in the league. This has been a very tumultuous year, which is not shocking considering the fact that very little happened last year. But we're seeing a lot of movement. So let's start with. The first game of the weekend, Kansas City hosting North Carolina. Nobody scored in this game. It was a 0-0 draw, but that was not what anybody cared about at all. What people cared about was the fact that there was a massive trade that occurred, I think, what, 30 hours before this game was played? Something like that, a little over 24 uh, North Carolina sent Caitlin Rowland, Haley Mace, and Kristen Hamilton to Kansas City for the rights to Amy Rodriguez and $60,000 in allocation money. Now, Rodriguez and Hamilton started this game yeah. for the team that they did not play for, again, about a day, day and a half earlier. I want to start with this, actually, John. The NWSL Players Association started a campaign this week that is the most open I think they have ever been about the realities of living on an NWSL salary. Um, The hashtag is no more side hustles. The website is no more side hustles.com. They are asking for signatures. If you feel so inclined, you can go join their pledge. The whole point being that I believe that they said they had a certain percentage and I, and I apologize. I don't remember what it was of the players who are on the 20, um, 22,000 minimum salary. And I think they believe, I believe they said that 75% of their players are not making more than $31,000 a year. Now we understand that, uh, housing goes into this other in-kind things go into this. That is a small, small number for a salary, especially for players who give so much to this league. And I believe that it was just kind of thrown into sharp contrast with a trade that I believe one party asked for and the other did not. Um, I think that Amy Rodriguez was, this was something that was something she was not, uh, surprised, I think by this development, Kristen Hamilton, Haley Mace and Caitlin Rowland, I think were, and that was the story, right? That is the story. So John, I want to ask you, cause you've been covering this league for a long time. How has it been watching the PA be very upfront about this probably for the first time? And do you think this is maybe a moment that will affect change? I don't know if this trade per se, you know, will affect uh, change. I think the fact that the PA is, is, is literally turning into a recognized legal union is going to be the thing that pushes the trade. The fact that they're going to have a CBA, the fact that they're going to have certain rights that will now be, you know, uh, 
codified into an agreement and be able to be enforced, uh, you know, legally through the courts is a huge step for the players in this league. Um, you know, I saw, I saw a lot about what you had said immediately um, after the game, because obviously Hamilton spoke out quite a bit uh, post game about everything that had happened. And it's, it's tough because, you know, as somebody who grew up um, watching traditional American sports, trades are just part of the game, right? Trades happen. And one day you're on one team and one day you're on another team. But I think the point that you were making, and I think the point that makes it uh, more difficult to kind of swallow for both the players and the fans is that if you don't, the, the money solves a lot of problems with being traded. Money is going to help. Moving costs a lot of money. Even if, even if, the team is covering your flight or, you know, a couple of bags of clothes. When you move to a new place, there are certain inherent costs and certain things that you have to purchase when you move to a new place. And, um, you know, so there is a financial hardship, if you will, associated with moving. And so um, when this kind of thing happens, you know, you do feel, uh, I think, worse for the players than you do if it's a major league baseball player or an NBA player, because you realize that, you know, of whatever hardships they might have, maybe they have a family, maybe they have kids who have to change schools. Um, They have a lot of financial resources to kind of buffer some of those things. And I think that's tougher when you're in a league, whereas you mentioned, and as the league put out, or at least the players association put out this week, where you have so many players who are earning around, you know, Twenty to thirty thousand dollars a year, because even with a housing allowance, even with access to cars, um, that's that's still something that is a stretch. And you know, as you mentioned, I've covered this league for a long time, and things have certainly got uh, much much better than where they were in, in 2013, 2014, 2015. But I've learned a, a lot about. Um, side hustles just from covering the league. Like I had no idea what Rover was until I heard Lauren Barnes talk about how she would walk dogs in the off season. And so um, I, I wrote a piece, I know you remember a couple of years ago about all of the WPS players who were still kicking it in the NWSL and like all of the things that they had gone through in their career um, just to, just to stay soccer players and not have to, you know, enter another profession. And it is very, very real. I don't think it's as bad as it used to. It's not as bad as it used to be, Um, but it is still a struggle. Yeah. I mean, I think that the thought that I had is um, there are arguments. I've had arguments presented to me actually on both sides of this, of uh, specifically the parity rules and, and some of the rules that do favor teams and specifically American sports where they have the ability to trade and, and derive value from player movement and all of that sort of stuff. I've heard people say it's anti-labor. It's, it's a, a, an attack against player rights. And I've heard people say that it is the only way the NWSL still exists. So I've heard both of that. Maybe those are arguable on either side. But it is objectively true that they do not get paid enough for this. And when they do bring in kind of this idea of this no more side hustles, a player gets traded. And with that understanding, they've lost a job. They've maybe lost two. 
they the the jobs that they have had to create for themselves yeah in addition jobs, to their yeah. end of usl salary are gone and and it happened immediately and then they have to go play a game in 24 hours um the one other thing i want to talk about with this game again sorry guys we're not going to talk about really the game at all but and uh the north carolina courage <clears throat> did also have a couple covid breakthrough infections mm-hmm. And I think that this is just worth mentioning. Um, I feel very strongly that this is not something to freak out about. I think one of the great things about the vaccination process is that these players are going to be fine. They are not going to have any long lasting adverse effects of this, but with kind of where things are going, we might see some more of this and and the NWSL players do have to be tested um, to, to play. And so when you have a job where you are tested for COVID I don't know if at some point the league starts restricting movement again, starts saying that, you know, I know we have these local CDC guidelines, but we actually need you not to go out to restaurants. We need you not to, to go do things because it affects your ability to do your job. We've seen the end of the NFL take yep. kind of a hard stance on that, where no one is making anybody get vaccinated. No one is actually making anybody do anything, but they are acknowledging that if you make it more difficult for this enterprise to continue that's going to adversely affect your employment um so i just wanted to acknowledge that i think we might see some of that more going forward the one other thing i thought was interesting about this is the fact that uh kansas city actually on the updated injury report said that they also had a couple players in covid protocol which was not something that they had disclosed previously so I think it's just an interesting uh, piece of disclosure. The injury report is kind of a f- thing in flux. Some teams are pretty <laughs> honest about it. Some yeah. teams aren't. Uh, I, I understand the need for privacy and all of that sort of stuff, but we'll kind of see how the league negotiates this because I don't think this is over by any means. So we'll just kind of see what happens in the future. So moving on to the next game of the NWSL weekend, Orlando pride. <laughs> There's just like massive stuff in all of these games. So the Orlando pride hosted OL rain this week. Mark Skinner left. He just left. He, he stepped down. He is still linked to the Manchester United job though. That has not been confirmed as quickly as he was here. He's gone in the middle yeah. at the end of an Orlando pride three game losing streak after uh, they had started so well. Uh, they had an interim coach running the match this weekend, which they said after the game was actually a little bit about hard feelings. They didn't want Skinner uh, leading this final game. They said, just give us an interim and then we will move on. And they did actually announce today that they hired Becky Burley, who had just retired from the university of Florida to see the team going forward. I think that's a great hire. I think that Orlando will uh, stabilize eventually for sure. Did not happen in this game. They lost two to nothing to O'Rain, uh, behind goals from Jess Fishlock and Ziara King. Orlando is in a bit of a free fall right now. And I know that we've had this conversation about how we thought the pride would actually be in the playoff conversation at the end of the season. I'm going to be honest. I'm not so sure anymore. What do you think, John? That's a good question. I think that to give them the benefit of the doubt, I think that they have, um, they've had a change in mentality this year that in the games where they've gone down, they haven't put their heads down. They've kept playing. Um, Obviously everybody in the league right now is dealing with international absences, but Orlando's are 
pretty big when you think about Morgan and Marta and then obviously Riley along the back line. Um, the other thing about this game is that LaRue scored an equalizer that was incorrectly called off sides. Now I did see someone say that Buhati had seen the arm go up and it had stopped playing. So, uh, you know, maybe she didn't put forth a hundred percent effort trying to keep the ball out of the net, but that I thought was, was kind of a game changing moment for them. Um, I thought Harris had a good game. Um, someone blew me some grief for that and saying, you know, how can you have a good game when you've given up two goals and had the, the handball on the pass back, which I thought was really cruel because none of that was her fault. Also, uh, they played Courtney Peterson in the midfield. Like, how can you be mad at a defense where they started Amy Turner? They had a new left back. They put Courtney Peterson in the midfield. Like, they're yeah. not in a great place right now just in kind of getting people into the system. Well, and let's add one more thing onto that. There was, um, right before the half, Buhati had come out for a ball, had completely whiffed on it. And Peterson missed the open net. Right. So Orlando was in this game, I think, more um, than the final scoreline indicated. Um, you know, you mentioned King having the goal. She also set up the first goal. She had a really, a really nice game. Um, and and Lace O'Mara had a couple of good moments in, in this match, too, uh, for them. But I do think Orlando was in this game more than the final scoreline showed. Agreed. Okay, so let's talk about Ola Rain. The thing I keep saying to people is that I'll believe that this is real when somebody scores for them who is not either an NWSL product or someone who has been with them for a long time. Still not the case. Now, you said usually Lesa Mare had a very good assist in this game. They were mm-hmm. more active, absolutely. Both Marajan and Lesa Mare were more active in this game. But the goal scorers were still Jess Fishlock who really created that first chance on her own with a brilliant turn and shot. And then Ziara King. I mean, I think that, I think that right now their best players are Jess Fishlock, Ziara King and Bethany Balser. Now, yeah. yeah, I think, I just think that you see the other players working into it, which I understand it's an adjustment, but I'll, I, for me, I will believe in this project when the, the people who have been brought in recently start really contributing and this was a step towards that, but it wasn't quite the breakthrough that I think OL Rain is looking for. Um, I, I mean, this is like kind of a silly question because I don't, I don't know the answer, but sure, they win this game, right? It's closer than the scoreline mm-hmm. shows, but they do win it. Do you watch this team and think they're definitely going to win the next game too and the game after that? Yeah, I don't think it's dominating. Yeah. Um, it, it's it's funny because I read the piece that you wrote after they played Chicago and you had commented about something about their midfield where they just weren't playing anybody defensively in their midfield. <laughs> I don't remember what exactly you wrote. I remember laughing, but um, you know, they, they have a lot of really nice pieces that still need to put together a team. Um, I am a bit of a contrarian in that I do think defensively they've gotten stronger which I thought was their weakest point heading into the season even before they signed all these offensive all-stars you know they've got Cook in there now Sam Hyatt's a regular starter now they've got Barnes in there uh, they've got Hammond so I think that their back line is is starting to solidify um, as you mentioned it's going to be getting that next piece 
Lace O'Mare not only had the assist, she did earn a penalty in the match, and Marajan was on the intercept um, uh, on, on, the, uh, on the one that went in uh, to Fishlock, too. So, the, you know, there, there's, there's a couple of moments there. I don't think – I think maybe what you're getting at, or at least what I kind of feel when I watch them, is that I know Marajan and Lace O'Mare as two of the best players in the world. And when I watch O.L. Reign, I don't go look at that and go, wow, look at those two players dominating the game. Because I think their best player was King. Right. Yeah, And agreed. you mentioned the game before, I think it was Balsam. Yeah, yeah. I Neither also of those that, are internationals. Yeah, and I think the good news for their defense is that I do think that their defense gets caught out a lot. But part of that is when they start such an attacking midfield, I think you start a real six and some of those problems go away. Um, we're going to start moving just because there's so much to talk about. Um, so that was the game against O.L. Reign versus Orlando. Good win for uh, O.L. Reign. Much needed. Orlando, we will see. Like I said, I think very highly of Becky Burley. I think she will solidify things. I also think Laura Harvey will solidify things. These are two teams that are waiting for that final coaching moment. So moving on to the last game of Saturday night. The Houston Dash hosted the Portland Thorns. Portland won this game one to nothing on a goal by Sophia Smith. She scored in like 30 something seconds, real quick goal. I didn't actually see it live because I was watching the other game and I had forgotten that they would be overlapping. And then suddenly Portland was winning. It was a very hot game. I think they said the heat index was over a hundred between the heat and the humidity. It was very physical. Um, I don't know if I actually have a ton to say about this one other than that. Obviously, Sophia Smith is developing into someone. Actually, maybe the one thought that I did have is that if you think of one player that really suffered for the fact that the NWSL did not get a normal season last year, I think you can look at Sophia Smith, even just in her um, experience with the U.S. Women's National Team. I think if she had gotten more professional club games she would have been in more in that conversation for an alternate spot she just it just didn't work out the way that it needed to and she was also injured a little bit last year um but these these moments these kind of brilliant moments from Sophia Smith are starting to be they're starting to happen at a quicker pace which is an indicator that a player is getting more used to the speed of play and I think that that is very exciting for Portland for the dash they are just treading water a little bit, I think, until their internationals come back. They've gotten a couple good results. They've had a couple tough ones. I think Jasmine Spencer was another positive point, but it, it was kind of the feeling of a lot of these games, which is just that teams are trying to get what points they can get, but if the game doesn't go their way, I'm not exactly sure how much they're upset by it because this is just so not the final form of any of these teams. Um any thoughts, I guess, John, on Houston or, or Portland? It just kind of I saw somebody Houston, indicate that they thought that, that they thought Clarkson was mad and that his team might be giving up on him at this point. And I, I really yeah. thought that was harsh because um, I didn't uh, see all of this one, but it, you know, Houston looked like they were battling to the very end, um, and they seem to have a really good mentality overall. Also, uh, Houston had like squad. their best win of the season just a week ago. Yeah, and um, the other thing, though, that we should mention is that we did learn that Allie Prysock is away from the team, and we're not 100% sure about why or, or where she may have gone. 
Yes, that was, um, that was, I mean, announced is maybe too strong of a word, but that was something that was acknowledged after the game in post game. Um, it was not something that Clarkson wanted to talk about. He wanted to focus on the players who had played in the match. But yes, Ali Prysock is no longer a player for the Houston Dash. And it is unclear whether that means that she's going somewhere else or whether that means, I, I don't really know. Um, yeah, it, it, it was an odd game, odd game for Houston. It seems like they're just running out of steam a little bit. I think that they were given kind of a difficult task going into this particular international period. And I think it's reasonable to see a team start to uh, uh, wilter a little bit under both literally the weather circumstances, but also just uh, what they're being asked to do. Because I think when you have players who are given very, very big responsibilities in the face of these international absences, I think there are going to be days where they can do that and just get days where they can't. And I think that that's just kind of what we saw. There's also teams like Portland, Gotham, Chicago, where their internationals are gone and you're just kind of like, eh, okay, they're gone. Cause you still look and they still, every name on the roster is still familiar. And then there's teams where, you know, with Houston, you still know their players, but there's a drop off. Like they're not a deep team or like North Carolina, you know, I know we already talked about that game, but they, they don't even look like the same. They're not the same team when they lose their international. So I think there are some teams and I think Houston's one of them that are much more affected by these international absences. Yes. Yeah. And I think that that is maybe the overall theme of this whole segment, which is just that um, the NWSL has not had a great kind of run of games recently. It's just, you look at their choice not to take a break for the Olympics and you wonder a little bit because the, the product that they're putting out on the field is not amazing. Now, Portland did get some separation here at the top of the table um, from this game and you start to wonder a little bit if we're starting to see if we might be beginning to see the gap between one and then the group between two and six I think I think that's possible I do not think that at any point Portland is going to start getting weaker Um, I think what North Carolina did in this trade this week really kind of puts their status in terms of shield contenders into question i don't know exactly what the thought process was behind that we'll have to see what they get for that sixty thousand dollars um but yeah just a lot of middling results and that actually ties into sunday where we have a game between gotham and chicago gotham hosted the chicago red stars gotham did win this game two to one on goals from Ali Long, a penalty well taken by Midge Purse. Chicago did get a goal back very late, like the last kick of the game by Mackenzie Doniak. Um, this was a bad loss for Chicago in that it was a winnable game for mm-hmm. them, I guess. And if you look at these teams, and I do think that this is what we're starting to see in the middle of the table, is that they have winnable games and they have less winnable games. And this one, I think, was was between two pretty evenly matched teams, to be completely honest. Um, Chicago, for the most part, their defense did a decent job kind of holding in Gotham's attack. Uh, Chicago got a couple good looks in offense on their own. They had a good push in the second half. Um, there was the first goal was you can call it mismanagement or bad luck. They had a play. Chicago had a player come off, whether it was due to heat exha- exhaustion or, or what at the very end of the first half, which meant that they were playing with 10 versus Gotham's 11. 
a bit of blown coverage on a ball sent into the box and Allie Long sinks that one time. Chicago does this thing that they do. They do a really big push in the second half. They have the ball. They have the ball in their opponent's half. They have a lot of movement in their opponent's box and they cannot find the equalizer. And then the other team scores the other way. Um, I don't feel like I learned anything about either of these teams in this game. This is just kind of what they've been doing, right? <laughs> yeah, it felt like a, the most Chicago 2021 game ever um, between giving up that goal at the absolute worst possible time, literally seconds before the halftime whistle. Um, and then you're right. They were, they were dominating the first 15 minutes of, of the second half. I mean, the ball was not even coming out of Gotham's half. And, um, and Chicago just, I mean, Watt missed a sitter at one point, which, which was fairly brutal. Um, and they, they still, we've said this a hundred times, they need it forward. They're, they're not going to change. This is who they are, uh, until they bring in another player. Uh, a lot of times, especially in the first half, they're trying to go on the attack one V four and, um, you know, no disrespect to Gotham because Long had a, had a nice finish and, and Purse had a great penalty, but it wasn't like Gotham came out there and kicked him in the teeth. No. Um, Chicago shot themselves in the foot. Right. Um, yeah, I think that what we've seen is we've seen the Red Stars come out in very defensive. They're they're building on the things that they are actually good at. So they're they're building off of very strong play in the central defense. They're building off of depth at the number six role, and they are trying to deal with the mental part of the game by getting their bearings early. They're not being super ambitious or aggressive early in the game, but they kind of get settled. And then the idea is that they can take their chances later. And right. The, the conceding of the goal right before halftime was unnecessary and affected the game. Um, and then yes, we saw Mallory Pugh in this match again, good and bad. She's doing a very good job of communicating with her teammates but that communication is not a person who's particularly happy with what she's being presented with when trying to generate offense. And I think that that is kind of just exactly where Chicago's at right now. Um, you bring Rachel Hill into a game like this one because you need her to defensively frustrate the other team. But until Mallory Pugh has someone who can help her, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be frustrating for them. And yeah, very indicative in that second half that, they are able to get numbers forward. They've never not been able to get numbers forward, but it's about what they do with it. Um, from Gotham's perspective, similar thing. They have a very physical midfield, right? They are about sort of imposing play in the center of the pitch. And then they have maybe one more or two more creators than Chicago does. And that was kind of all the difference. And I thought that Mitch Purse had a very good game, but I thought that Sarah Gordon did a good job of containing Ifioma Anumanu. Again, just kind of actually a bummer for Chicago because it's not that they got a result that they didn't deserve. I think that ultimately Gotham outplayed them, but in who they want to be in as a playoff contender, this is the kind of game that kind of can't go this way. Um, so yeah, I guess we'll just kind of have to see. I don't know. I you know, Gotham shoots into second, or they did shoot into second briefly with with this result. And I don't know, did this make you feel more positive about Gotham or was it really just like here are two teams that are pretty similar and just one team had to win? Well, just look at Gotham's depth. So you, you look at the starting lineup and then you look at, they, they have four players on their bench in this game today that 
in, in some circumstances would start, right? Whether that's Pinto or Cujo or Baxter or Flores, um, the freedom, Freeman's hurt. Um, Monahan's hurt. So that's six players right there. Plus they're international players. You look at, you look at Gotham, they've got 20 players who can get on the field and, and legitimately play. That's a solid team. It's, it's still not, you know, they don't have uh, a superstar per se. Um, they, they maybe are still finding each other a little bit because a lot of these pieces were added in, in the, you know, bizarreness of 2020. So I'm not sure that this is a group that's necessarily had a ton of experience together, but, but look at the flip side. I don't think they necessarily need it because you mentioned Chicago, the, the two most vocal people for Chicago this year uh, have been Kayla Sharples, who is a second year player on a backline full of experienced defenders and Mallory Pugh, who's still a very young player who just came to the team this season. Those should not be the two most vocal players out on the field. So I don't think that Gotham necessarily needs a ton of time to figure this out. I think they have figured it out. I think they're in good shape. Um, You know, is this a title team? I still think they're half a step away from that. But I think you're looking at a team that's one of the best in the league. Yeah, I agree. I think you're right. And I actually think that – my thought upon watching this game, my like final thought on this is that I was watching the first half before the goal was scored. So the, the part of the game where, where it was still nil nil. And I thought here are two teams that kind of know what they're about. Both of these teams are coming in with a very specific game plan at this point. We're halfway through the season. They know what they can do. They know what they're trying to do. And it was very evenly matched. And then what we saw in the confusion that led to the first goal. And then as the second half played out is one of these teams actually knows who they are more than the other one does, or they just have the ability to execute a little bit better. And I think in the margins that we're seeing in this NWSL season, that's all it takes. I agree. I feel good about Gotham. I would say actually out of every team this weekend, knowing that Portland is very good, knowing that Washington is very good. Mm-hmm. Gotham yep. has to feel good about this one. Yep. Yeah. This is a signifier. I think for that, probably the third or fourth best team in the league. Yeah. Agreed. Especially like we said, whatever North Carolina is doing, we're going to have to see about it. Um, yeah. So let's talk about the last game of the, of the weekend. Um, Washington traveled to Louisville. This game was rescheduled because it was very, very hot. Can confirm it's been very hot in the Midwest this week and also further south of us. So this game ended two to nothing in favor of the Washington spirit. A very early goal from Ashley Hatch and a goal in the 58th minute by center back Sam Staub. Now I did not get to see much of this one, John, you watched it. Um, maybe I, you can tell me if something happened here that, that surprised you in any way, or is this just Washington's a quality team? They're in that top four. Honestly, I think if you're a Louisville fan, you had to come out of this game pretty bummed because really? they controlled a ton of possession and it was not meaningless possession around the back. They dominated the midfield in the first half. Um, and I think at the, at the break, they had uh, close to 60% of the possession in that first half. And they even moved the ball into dangerous spaces. So it wasn't just meaningless possession around the back. It wasn't just them knocking it around. They were getting up the field. They were getting into the final third. 
Um, but once they got into the final third, they weren't creating a lot of dangerous chances. Um, and I, I thought that the idea that Louisville was controlling the game was particularly interesting because we know the Spirits' M.O. is the 600 passes and is to knock the ball around until the uh, you know opponent either drops of exhaustion or gets bored or makes a mistake. And that wasn't the case. Louisville um, controlled a lot of this game. They just they just didn't do much with it. You know, CeCe Kaiser had a couple of good hits. There was one late where she should have just taken it herself. Um, obviously, Nadia Nadim got in, but uh, they, they just don't create enough dangerous chances in the final third. On the flip side, if I'm Washington, I'm happy that, you know, maybe I, you know, uh, we didn't play particularly well, but we come out with a win. Uh, Sanchez looked great again. Hatch, Hatch looked good. Hatch's goal was, I thought, fantastic. You know, Sanchez wins it, uh, immediately plays it up to, to McCown up, up front. She finds Hatch in. Hatch had a beautiful finish. Uh, second half, Hatch about broke the crossbar with one of her strikes, which I thought was was fantastic. Um, and and they just counter well. And that's a nice piece for Washington because, you know, there were times – I think in, in 2019 and even, even in 2020 with the limited uh, opportunities for teams to play that Washington was that very typical team, which controls possession and loses the game or controls possession and can't create. And they have this added little wrinkle. And I think we have to give uh, their staff credit for building this team because I, listen, I don't honestly think anybody other than they, thought Rodman would come in and play this well as a rookie Sanchez has developed. And I think Sanchez Sanchez was kind of a gamble when they took her, she had fallen down the draft board a little bit. I think a lot of people questioned whether she had the mentality to play in the league. And both of those players are are two of the most fun players in the league to watch right now. Well, they gave up Mallory Pugh for Ashley Sanchez. That was a, that was a trade that, um, People weren't sure exactly how that would work out. Um, Yeah, I think, you know, my my thoughts, again, a little bit sight unseen, but um, it seems to me that what Washington has going with their young players in particular is Mm -hmm. everything that they kind of hoped for. And so here's a question for you, John. Does Washington get better when Emily Sonnet and Kelly O'Hara comes back or does it just kind of muddy things a little bit? That's a really good, tough question because I think – I like their back line um, when it is Nielsen and Staub in the middle and uh, McGrady and Huster on the outsides. And obviously, <laughs> if you're Richie Burke, I don't know how you do that with those other two. Now, maybe they don't come back healthy. Yeah, um, you know, we, we've seen in the past Kelly O'Hara come back from international tournaments kind of broken and, and needing some some time off or surgeries or whatnot. But yeah, that, that could be kind of a tough, a tough call for him because um, his, his team, uh, as he's built it going back over the past couple of years, um, really plays well the way it is right now. And they've got Sullivan there in the midfield doing her thing, and Sanchez has, has dropped into that midfield role, and they've got a really nice, really nice front line too. Okay, final question about Washington. So we've seen them – do you know quite well against Louisville? They had a very good win against North Carolina, um, though maybe our feelings about North Carolina have shifted a little bit. But the, you know they lost. They lost. They did lose to Louisville once. They lost to Chicago a couple of weeks ago. Um, they play Chicago again this upcoming week. 
can they do this thing that they do against other top teams? Or was this a little bit of a, they're on a roll, they're playing Louisville, which is, you know, for all of their positives, still an expansion side, still have some mm-hmm. gaps. Sure. Um, I just feel like we have these weeks where we feel so good about Washington. Yep. And then we have these weeks where we're like, they had an opportunity here to actually really make a statement. And it's not sure that it, ha- I'm not sure that it happened. Um, so do you think that maybe my question is, it's clear that this could build into a playoff spot that is very difficult for Washington to give up. But do you think they're there now? Yeah. I mean, I would say if, if I had to kind of power rank, I'd probably put them two yeah. right now, maybe three, because I do, I do honestly believe that if you look at the courage with Rodriguez, McDonald, Williams, Dabinia, Mewis, O'Sullivan, Ursig, Matthias, Pickett, um, that they're probably like North Carolina is probably only one player away from fielding the second best 11, maybe the best 11 in the league. Sure. Um, and maybe they're going to use some of that $60,000 to, to do that. Um, so I, I'd be a little hesitant because North Carolina is, is one of those teams because when they don't have their internationals, they're just terrible. Right. So it's, yeah. they're a tough team to kind of wrap around. I think Portland, you still got to say Portland's number one. And then I'd say either North Carolina or Washington it would be my, would be my second team right yeah, now. I agree. I think the funny thing about all of this, and it's very American, very NWSL to say this, but um, for Washington, the proof will come at the very end. So they are absolutely putting themselves in a great place to have that moment at the very end where they transcend into the next thing. But I do just think the reality for them for the next 12 games is just you're putting the product together. You're trying to focus it into this thing. And then we will find out at the end of the season if it's the real deal um, for this year. So... I, I'm going to be honest. I don't think that there was anything this week that radically altered what I think is going to happen at the end of this season. Um, maybe some questions about Orlando, maybe Louisville dropping off a little bit, all of that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. Any final major thoughts about NWSL this weekend, John? No, I think, I think honestly, you posed the question of the week, which is what happens to Washington after the Olympics, which I hadn't put a lot of thought into, but uh, I would not want to make that decision if, if I was Richie Burke. Yep, I agree. Yeah, I think out of everybody, they are the team that seems the most intact. I think that Portland is doing a very good job of executing without the people that they will absolutely welcome back with open arms. North Carolina is dying for those players. I think, uh, Gotham has to feel good about what they've been able to develop. Chicago will welcome their players back, but those are not the issues, right? The players that they're getting back are not solving the bigger problems that they have. Orlando might be fine. They might not. Houston will absolutely get better when they get some of their internationals back. So um, yeah, this was just this weekend end of USL, some big Olympic vibes, but we keep plugging ahead thank you so much john for joining me for this very long episode of the equalizer podcast shout out to our producer extraordinaire jacqueline purdy thank you so much to blue wired podcast who distribute us which is the word i was looking for earlier i am your host claire watkins thanks so much for listening guys 
We'll talk to you next week.